As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we're hanging out at New Rift Distillery. New Rift. We have crossed the river into Kentucky. <laughs> made, it, made it all the way over that bridge. <laughs> Man, this is the first time we've recorded in person in a long time. Since we were in Kentucky in September. Yeah. It's been a while, man. We're in between seasons six and seven right now. Yeah. And we're doing a little special bonus episode because we bonus received... Episode. We received a very special invitation from our friend Jay Arisman at New Riff. The greatest. The bearded. <laughs> <laughs> Jay's sitting here right next to us. I, I'll spare the graphic details of uh, just exactly how unbelievably sexy this beard is that he's wearing now. Just think about Stallone and Rambo 4. Rocky 4. Sorry. What kind of movies are we talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> Jay, how are you today? I'm all right. Jay has uh, unmistakably, and without question, one of the best voices in the world of whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> easily. Every time he's on the show, there's a reason he hasn't been on in six seasons, and it's because I'm afraid he's going to usurp my throne easily every time he's on yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, we, we all know that you have the best voice on this podcast, Bob. I mean, you know. But Jay, if he were a regular <laughs> guest... It would be close. ...is more intelligent and has a better voice. It's true. So... So we're on site at New Riff. We're going to be sampling some whiskeys today, and we're going to be doing a top five episode with a really, really killer theme. This was all Jay's idea. You know, he is the brainchild of this podcast. The horror slasher theme. <laughs> killer theme a here, killer guys. Theme. We're going to be looking at whiskeys that come from the same day of production. So we're trying three bourbons that were all produced on the same day, and we're going to be looking at movies that take place over the course of one day. So mm. those are our top fives. A 24-hour movie. Brilliant. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited too, Bob. It is wonderful to be here, Jay. First off, thanks for having us. Glad to have you back. This is Brad's first time at New Riff. We've taken a little tour of the facility. And uh, the, the tour is apropos to what we're talking about here. Yeah. Because of the way that they distill their bourbon and all their whiskeys here at New Riff. Jay, can you tell us a little bit more about the process and how that affects the three bourbons we're drinking today? Sure thing, Bob. So um, at New Riff, we have uh, we have now nine fermenters. We expanded uh, a year ago, just about uh, with nine more, with, uh, with uh, seven, eight, and nine. So we have these fermenters, and in a day's production, we all, we we empty three fermenters and and make three mashes and fill them back up. So it's it's three batches a day at New Riff. Uh, it doesn't seem like that now because we run in a twenty four hour cycle, not twenty four seven, but twenty four hours. So Sometimes in a day, we actually put into barrel four. But conceptually, we always thought of, quote unquote, a day's production as being uh, three batches. 
And uh, for reasons that we'll explain in, in a little bit, uh, because of our unique size and uh, uh, the, the layout of the building and, and some of the architectural uh, uh, constraints we have and so on, we don't have huge tanks to store spirit in. And uh, so when we make these three batches, uh, we distill a fermenter and that goes in a spirits tank. We call it the gauge tank. And it's where we gauge the whiskey, which is to find out exactly how much whiskey do we have here and in terms of alcohol as well as just liquid gallons. So we gauge the whiskey and we cut it to 110 proof, which is our barreling proof, rather low barreling proof, and uh, put it into the barrel. And now the tank is empty. So then we go and distill another fermenter. And we put that in the tank and we cut that to 110 proof and we put that in the barrel. So now that one's empty. And we do three of these, and that's considered a day's production. And that's differently than the way most distilleries run, especially larger ones than us. And we are sort of a mid-major distillery. We make 12,000 barrels a year. We make 40-odd uh, barrels a day, 42 barrels a day, which is no small bit of production. I mean, it, it's healthy. A little uh, bit of whiskey. It's a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> but we're still in many other ways small. And so these tanks only hold the output of one fermentation. Well, one, if we, if we could one batch, which is about 12 to 14 barrels. And most distilleries don't really operate that way. They have a, a much larger tank that they send their spirits into. They call it a cistern tank. And they distill a fermenter and it goes in the cistern tank. And they distill another fermenter and that goes in the tank. They distill three more fermenters. The tank is as big as your house. And eventually they start cutting that down to proof and putting it into the barrel. What they've done is, is homogenized any differences between all those different fermenters that they ran off. And for better or worse, we don't run that way. That's a super smart way for those distilleries to operate because it builds a lot of consistency into what's going into the barrel. But we're small enough that we just can't have these huge tanks. So we do not homogenize the flavor of each batch. And we preserve to a much larger degree than most places the individual character of each fermentation. And the truth is, we know each fermentation, each given batch, I mean, I don't mean the tank itself, like tank number one has a sweet flavor. That's not it at all. But each given batch can have a unique character, a, a particular character. And we know that because we taste all 12 to 14 barrels of each batch. So we taste the 13 barrels out of that fermentation, and it's generally sweet. And the next one is generally dry. The next one might be spicy. The next one might be smoky. What that means four years later when we're making single barrels, we present to the consumer uh, a, a product that not only captures the flavor of that particular piece of wood, you know, that particular barrel that, that influenced that, that whiskey and also the, the character of where that barrel was stored in the warehouse. Was it high? Was it low? Was it sitting in the sun? Things like that. But we also offer them this fermentation character. And the result is that New Rift single barrels have got a tremendous range of flavor. So much so that if somebody sampled a New Rift single barrel and, and they don't really like sweet whiskey and that one happened to be a really dry tasting batch, they might, finally, a bourbon that's not too sweet. And they try the next one and it is sweet. And now they're, they're upset. I'm sorry, that could happen. Dear, <laughs> dear whiskey consumer, please buy the bottled and bond right. <laughs> from New Rift. But our, our single barrels can have a tremendously variable uh, character to them that captures that. As a whiskey nerd, a whiskey lover, I find that 
fun. I find it fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. So it's always, you know, uh, intrigued me to, to compare uh, the, the difference between a day's production. And of course, I've, I've tasted umpteen bajillion batches of them and, and certainly tasted many different days, but I've never sat down like this to do it with some other people, to do it sort of analytically and, and to have some fun with it. So when you go into something like this, uh, like a day's production, is the intent usually these are these are intended for single barrels or they could end up as bottled in bond. They could end up batched together. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, not necessarily these three that are in front of us, but like, what would the intent be when you sit down with multiple samples from a day's production? Well, uh, we analyze each batch and, and, and taste each batch. We, we actually sample and, and analyze damn near every barrel. Uh, it is, uh, people say all the time, I, I want that job. You know, are you hiring? <laughs> Buddy, you don't want to be hired for that job. It is actually really difficult and yeah. exhausting work, but we got to do it. Uh, I'm saying that without an ounce of facetiousness. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it is it is fun, but it's very taxing. So, uh, we, uh, we, we do sample uh, almost all of them and uh, determine, is this barrel fit for a single barrel? And when I say fit, I don't mean that the best of the best all go to the single barrels. We're really looking for, uh, obviously, a, a good consistent quality across the entire sample and experience, but also for something unique. Mm -hmm. You know, does that barrel, that batch, what's it got? Um, so we have to save uh, some of those to become our bottled in bond, which is is made from a a, uh, a batching together, a vatting, if you will, of about 25 to 30, maybe 20 to 30 barrels. And then we also hold back about 20 to 30% of everything we make to become older. And okay. uh, so, th that's another uh, future life for, for these whiskeys. Which, which of them do we hold back? Mm -hmm. But we don't go into it saying, this batch is all going to go single. That's not really it at all. From a, a given batch, we probably cut it up about three different ways. Okay. Uh, plenty of it goes to bottled and bond. Some of it will go to single barrel production and some will be held back. I'm curious, Jay, do you feel like in the in the world of the whiskey consumer, it seems to me like people have been slowly moving away from the more established brands and just venturing out into the wild west of craft distilleries and everything that's going on out there. Where do you feel like New Riff is positioned in there? Where, Like you said, you're kind of a mid-major producer. You're not just some tiny craft distillery, but you're also diving into that a little bit more experimental, a little more variety of flavor that you would get from a place like that? Right. Good question, Brad. Well, we, we don't really conceive of ourselves as as craft, whatever that means. Right, um, right. Uh, we have much more in common with the four roses of the world than we mm -hmm. do you know, a guy in a shack with a pot still cranking it out by hand and things like that. I feel personally but it was that, attacked now. It, it, it was that the guy and the gal in the shack with the pot still that did did play a huge inspiration in us, uh, in us building New Riff and, and creating it. Undoubtedly, had it not been for the the, the craft distilling wave in the in the early two thousands. Um, so we we always thought we we have first of all such inspiration and such a a legacy of great whiskey producing in Kentucky behind us generations of people that made this industry what it is and we never think that we're just going to supplant all that whatsoever that was our inspiration mm -hmm. i love it easily one of the best looking bottles thank oh you oh my gosh every time i see it i'm like that transition from the matte black to the listen here's the thing packaging matters it really like, i don't care what anybody says and, yeah. and you know we've we've talked to a wide range of people on this podcast and sometimes people that are 
very traditionalists and and purists will say that like anything that's in a flashy looking package is just a gimmick and it's all marketing and no packaging matters yeah and you know the thing I love about New Riff is it's one of the few that we've found where the packaging is as striking as what's inside of the bottle yep. All right, Brad, it is time for us to talk movies. We're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we'll be breaking down our top five 24-hour movies. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, Brad, it's time for us to break down our top five movies that take place in the course of a day. Mm-hmm. This was kind of a hard list to make because, yeah. you know, we, we've watched a lot of movies that take place in real time. So like, a, a you know, an hour and a half long movie that is supposed to be 90 minutes long. Right. And I'm thinking of a really fun little movie from like the early 2000s called Phone Booth that yeah. really operates that way. I didn't choose a movie like that. I wanted a movie where like sun up to sundown yeah. was for the most part the central conceit of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got a pretty good list. How are you yeah. feeling about your list? Great. Tree of Life is <laughs> right up there. It's not like it's about the entire creation it's of the universe. about the days of creation, yeah. Yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's exactly. what you wanted. <laughs> All right, Brad, why don't you kick us off here? Jay actually has just one movie he wants to talk about. He said, forget your top fives. It's this movie is as good as five films. That's right. That's all. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll kick in with a couple others yeah, that, please do. that you guys may not cover or, or more to the point, uh, include a couple that I love and that are really great movies and blah, 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 but wouldn't inform or, or echo what we have learned about New Riff's day of production. There you go. And yeah. there's a movie out there that, that, I, that I thought did. So. It was a very bad day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have Dog mine. Day Afternoon. That's, hey man, don't, don't get too far ahead. Doesn't yeah, get much on. better than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my number five, uh, I, this is honestly based a little more on a memory than on having watched the film recently. But I remember watching The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 in probably the mid-2000s. So I was probably, you know, mid-teenage years. Are you talking the remake or the, the original? The Johnny Travolta, Denzel mm. Washington. I just remember that movie being incredibly suspenseful yeah. and some great action in it. That movie is really underrated. And, you know, people have really come around on the original. Uh, it's gotten a, a recent re-release in 4K and people have been you know, praising the original from the 70s. Mm-hmm. I loved the remake. I thought, you know, it's a Tony Scott movie who's a director that I want to do on the podcast at some point. But I really, really loved that movie. Yeah. Especially with a very hammy John Travolta villain performance. Yep. Like, it does not get much better than that. And Denzel being Denzel. Being Denzel. So, yeah, that, that is my number five. My number five is a movie from 1995. And the start of a trilogy that is really beloved in film circles from the director, Richard Linklater, it's a movie called Before Sunrise. I love this movie. Does the whole movie happen before sunrise? It does. Yeah. So it's about uh, uh, Ethan Hawke's character is an American overseas in Europe. And he's kind of like... I've heard of these movies. He's like a snooty college kid. Mm -hmm. And he meets uh, Julie Delpy's character, who is a French girl who's also traveling. And they just spend an evening walking around the streets of some uh, European city and falling in love. And I, what I love about that movie is Ethan Hawke's character is so obviously like 22 years old. Yeah. And he knows everything about the world and he thinks he's being super deep and philosophical. And then, you know, not to spoil everything, but the the second film in the trilogy happens like, I don't know, seven years later. It's and now they're before lunch. Now they're 30. It's called <laughs> it says before sunrise, before sunset, and then before midnight are the three movies. 
Do they die in the third one? I broke. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you are just the worst. Before Sunrise is my number five film. Brad, okay. hit us with your number four. Yeah, number four is a film we just did recently in season six, Collateral. Oh, nice. Famously takes place in one evening. Yeah. Yeah. Five stops. Five stops. Five deaths. <laughs> more than, more than uh, five deaths. Quite a few more than five deaths. <laughs> It wouldn't be a film and whiskey episode if Brad did not get the chance to talk about Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is the reason we still have cinema. So <laughs> and, and a podcast, apparently. And a podcast. Yeah. So I, that's all I'm going to say. There is something to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if not for Top Gun Maverick. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't. None, this is not hyperbole. None of us. <laughs> We'd all be dead. <laughs> and I mean, I guess that's a perfect segue. I think we should dive right into these three samples. Uh, we've poured them all out in front of us. We know nothing about them, Brad. Other than that, they were distilled on the same day. I was, gonna, and they're from New Riff. They're from New Riff. <laughs> so, Jay, uh, we are in your hands. Can you walk us through these samples? Sure. So, we have in front of us uh, three samples that were distilled. Were put in the barrel, but probably distilled on December 9th, twenty eighteen. So, these turned four back in December, and uh, they are uh, uh, part of our single barrel selection. Uh, uh, barrels right now. So some some lucky soul will come along and and find a, a, a soulmate in one of these barrels and take it home uh, to their store or their restaurant or their bar or whatever. So uh, or their home, literally. We we sell private barrels to uh, to the public as well. Um, sell a lot of those. So uh, on the top of the of the little bottle here, I have written down the lot code. This is the uh, federal government's uh, preferred code for how we refer to a batch. It's called 18L09. And that translates to 18, the year 2018. L is the month, December. Okay. So, A, B, C, D, A is January. Yeah. Uh, 18L09, of course. 18L09 is the, uh, is the, the ninth of, of that month. So, we have 18L09, 18L09A, and 18L09B. Mm. And respectively, those barrel numbers are 15535, 1550, 15566. Be on the lookout. Yeah. When you hit your retail stores here in the next few years, I guess. <laughs> but no, sir, I need to see the number of the barrel, please. Well, it's on there on, on single barrel. Someday someone will find this. So, um, what we have here is, is, and I tasted these earlier, so I, I can vouch for them all. Uh, I didn't go necessarily selecting a day with wildly different character in all three batches. Uh, that would have been finding, it was hard enough to find this. Uh, it took about 20 minutes, uh, but it would be uh, you know, really tough to find, to, to intentfully find a day that that had, uh, that did in fact have wildly different care. I want a smoky one and a sweet one and a dry one. Uh, but we run across those kind of days and, and on any given day, any, again, any given batch can have a uh, particular character. So with that in mind, let's, let's start just by nosing them. Yeah, one, two, three. One is really beautiful. I, um, so I had let it sit for about five, 10 minutes here and I just nosed it as, as is. And it was just really deep brown sugar. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was a classic bourbon nose with absolutely no ethanol burn on the nose whatsoever. It yeah. was almost like really fresh post rain water. Like it smelled fresh and I gave it a little, I agitated it a little bit. I swirled it around 
And then these really beautiful floral notes came out. The spice came back a little bit. I almost get like a little wisp of dill on the end of this too. Mm. Like it's just really, really beautiful. Yeah, for me, it wasn't necessarily dill. It was a little bit minty, mm-hmm. almost like a sweet mint mixed with like a buttered popcorn. Mm. Like I I think that this is a really buttery, almost creamy type of nose mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Those herbal notes you're describing, uh, I would certainly attribute to the rye in, in our whiskey. And it's, it's a high rye, mash yep. bill, 30% rye. So um, there can definitely be a... And herbaceousness coming from dill sometimes. And mint in particular is is common, especially common in our rye whiskey, which is 95% rye, 5% malted rye. So that is a very spicy meatball of a, <laughs> of a whiskey. Um, and mint, and not like peppermint or, or altoids or toothpaste or something, but more of a floral, herbaceous, like wintergreen, spearmint, mm-hmm. possibly crossing over into things like sassafras or sarsaparilla. Mm-hmm. People sometimes say, hey, remember those root beer candies we ate when we were kids? A little root beer barrels like that. Yeah. It, it can sometimes verge into that kind of a, of a flavor from the rye. Yeah. And even as I give that number one a taste, oh man, the, the rye is just at the right amount where mm-hmm. you get the brown sugar, the caramel, like I said, almost like a buttery, salty popcorn. But that that herbaceousness comes through the rye spices there on the back end. Jay, that's an incredible whiskey. <laughs> I will say this is like, you know, Brad is the rye drinker of the two of us. I'm the bourbon guy. And I prefer my bourbons to be like, you know, let's be frank here, like sickly sweet. I love a sweet <laughs> bourbon. Brad likes his really strong rye punch on a bourbon. And this one definitely tips on the flavor, you know, the palate Mm -hmm. into the rye. Like it has the bourbon sweetness at the front of the palate and then the mint and the rye really take over towards the back of the palate for me. It's really beautiful, uh, but it definitely has a spice to it. Yeah. Uh, Jay, are there any other tasting notes on number one that you think we may have missed here? Oh, I I think you pretty much covered it. For for me, the the fascinating part is... Uh, comparing these three and yeah. seeing how, you know, an analogy I use sometimes is um, like a mixing board. You, mm-hmm. you guys are recorders. I'm a guitar player. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a recorder also. We, we deal with mixing boards and you push the faders up and things like that. These have um, broadly similar characters. I don't think there's anything in here that stands out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, I mentioned the smoky flavor. Truly, there is like one in about, I don't know, 20, 18 or 20. If we sit down and taste, you know, a month or a month and a half's production, we, we eventually run across a smoky batch. Mm-hmm. And I do not know why it gets smoky. It's not the barrel. It is not the barrel or else any given barrel would have some per, some percentage chance of being a smoky one. Right. No, it's something in the damn fermentation. And I can't imagine what it is. See, and that's that's what I just love about whiskey. Yeah. Like I have at this point, we have talked to people from so many different distilleries all across the spectrum from owners to distillers to everything. And nobody has an answer as to why this isn't a science. I mean, it is a science. Like, the funny thing is, you could break this down on the molecular level and say, like, oh, this has the presence of this many different types of things in it that this one doesn't. And yet... there's no explaining how it got that. How it got that. Exactly. And that's the part for me where I'm like, yes, it's a science, but it's an art, But it's a mystery. It's an art, and it's a mystery, (laughs) and I love that. Well, you were talking about smokiness, and honestly, that segues me into number two here, because if I can go down memory lane for a minute, Brad, you know that I grew up, I grew up Catholic. You sure And I did. was an altar server. For Bells and smells, of, baby. Bells and smells. <laughs> for a number of years, I was, you know, donning the white robe 
And were you an altar boy? I was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This reminds me so much of like the combo of freshly washed like white linens, uh huh, and freshly extinguished church candle wax. Like yeah. it has like a waxiness and like a extinguished wick to it. Yeah. There's a smokiness to this that is like. I feel weird because I'm drinking whiskey, but I'm also remembering being like 10 years old. So it's, it's a very <laughs> conflicted Do you feeling. You just feel like your soul I'm sinning being punished. hardcore right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, if there's anybody who doesn't drink in the Christian world, it's the Protestants. It's not the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one, it, it has a real, again, once again, it's a clean scent to it. Yeah. We use these words sometimes that. Mm-hmm. I like that. They're more evocative than they are descriptive. But, you know, Brad, when we drink. Irish whiskey, we always use the word bright because it reminds us of citrus and melon. This one has like a very clean... Your word of linen was perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, like like a freshly laundered and not like an old, old t-shirt, something like already new, freshly laundered. (laughs) It's incredible. We're breaking down like the the level of cotton (laughs) versus rayon. Jay, how about you? What are you getting on this one? Yeah, I I appreciate your comments of of wax. That's a waxiness. That, That... is probably a an alarming or or a striking word that many people would would run across. Wax? What? I, I, they, it, it comes from a place of sort of lanolin. I, I often, not often, but I, I use that term in in my own notes, both a lot for Scotch, but also certainly for and for some wines, Chenin Blanc, for example. But uh, I, I I've written that down many times in yeah. in a new riff tasting note. This waxy. Uh, quality in a, in a lovely way. Uh, beeswax often. In fact, mm-hmm. sometimes the if if our barrels pick up a sort of specifically honeyish characteristic, it often is, is not just honey but honeycomb, mm. and the intersection of something waxy that the bees have made as well as as the honey itself. Uh, it's maybe a little bit sweeter than one, but yeah. how interesting that it. It's not drastically. I think it's a little bit sweeter. Mm-hmm. You're the sweet tooth here, uh, <laughs> Bob. You, you tell me, but um, but but also sweeter in a different way than uh, than number one. You know, the funny thing is, uh, you're talking about the science and the things that interest you with this. I'm always really interested in the way that the ethanol presents itself because I imagine that these have to be very similar proof points. I don't know exactly what proof these are all sitting at, but number two, the ethanol was just much more forward and the mm. mouthfeel was like, I could tell that the, the alcohol really presented itself more on the palate for me. It was kind of that more thin alcohol forward mouthfeel. The number one was more, uh, definitely more syrupy, more viscous for me. Hmm. I don't know. What are you getting on this one, Brad? I think that Jay, as you were talking about it being a little bit sweeter, I'm with you. It almost to me is like a bubble gum kind of sweet. And and similar, like with not just the flavor, but with the waxiness of it, like it almost kind of reminds me of uh, like Major League Chew Man, or is, you took my is note. That, <laughs> okay. or the uh, the rope that you would get in the little thing. We're children of the 90s, so <sighs> you've <laughs> I don't mean to skip ahead to number three, but this was going to be I was going to blow all of your minds. And it was going to be by saying this. You're I, welcome. I had nosed all three of these, even if we hadn't tasted them yet. And the consistent thing I got on all three of these was that powdery pink bubble gum mm. that you open up bubble tape and yep. you pull yourself out some of them. There's a bubble gum, especially on number three, when we get yeah. to that, on the nose that is like unmistakable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I'm getting that a lot on the palate of number two. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I guess we can go ahead and jump into number three here. This one is kind of the best of both worlds of one and two. Yeah. It has some of those more classic bourbon notes on the nose that one had a little bit brighter, a little bit cleaner on the nose, reminiscent of number two. And then it's got some bubble gum. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, number three is incredible. I think it is a little bit of a mixture. For me, I, I do get a little more of the the traditional caramel that that you're getting from from most bourbons. Whereas the first two had a little more unique twist on that. This one feels like a really rich classic bourbon. But as you were saying, Jay, like being from the same day, you know, three different batches, it feels like there's a similarness there that you just don't see on a lot of other whiskeys. Yeah, uh, th- there is uh, some commonality between them all, I think. And yet, the the again, the the faders, the sliders of the mixing board are, are moving mm-hmm. around. The EQ curve, yeah. you know, <laughs> this one's got, you know, they scoop out the mid-range, but it's got more high end yeah. and, and so on, speaking in musical terms. And that's even without, uh, I don't think we've gotten into adding uh, water to these, but that will, of course, uh, shift and bring out additional flavors. That's when, when people have been asking me for 20 plus years, back to my days as a retailer at the store next door, uh, you know, how, sh- how should I drink? How do you think we should drink our whiskey? And I've been telling them all that time, drink it any way you want, just yeah. buy it from me. <laughs> that said, I tell them I drink it with a little water, especially when it's an unchill filtered whiskey like New Riff is. But here I, I actually uh, appreciate, I think, Tasting them initially, and I always add water to my new Riff whiskey, but I haven't here today. And I think it's it's instructive to just try them uh, sort of prima facie, you know, right on the face of it without getting into the variables that other flavors can come out with water. Let's just compare them straight up. Uh, the reason they're so harmonious at barrel proof, and these are barrel proof samples. I pulled them right out of the barrel myself uh, just a few hours ago. Uh, they go in the barrel, as I said, at 110 proof. Four years later, they uh, they are, are up a little bit in proof, maybe to 113, 114, mm-hmm. or uh, down to maybe 107, 108. Let's just call these about 110 proof. They're very tractable, very approachable straight up. What you never yeah. get with a new riff single barrel is 139 proof. Yeah. Too strong to bring it on an airplane proof, that right, kind of thing, right. it, which people groove on that and it's maybe fun. It's also hard to drink, obstreperous, just very you know, obnoxiously strong whiskeys. Yeah. And when yeah. people don't add water to that, now they're really facing down some, some, some stiff drink. And ours are very approachable if mm-hmm. you do want to have a, a, an experience. Uh, like this, which I would add, and here's my ulterior motive of selling some more bottles of New Riff. But when you're buying out there in the world a, a, a single barrel of New Riff, see if the store has got two single barrels. Mm-hmm. See if there's two two bottles on that shelf with uh, with different uh, numbers, with with different numbers, especially that are um, uh, well apart from each other. If you mm-hmm. if you find barrel 100 and barrel 150, you can be assured those are from different lots. Or if a if a store has got uh, New Riff single barrel as well as their barrel selection, please buy, buy a <laughs> bottle of each. But you, you compare them, and you're getting again not just the difference between the barrels. You're getting a window into the, the fermentation, and that I just don't know of any place else. Again, we didn't plan it this way. Serendipitously, that's how these come out, and we're not going to change it now. <laughs> we're not going to put in a huge tank so we can mix up all our bourbon and right. get rid of all this inconsistency. Yeah. It's a beautiful inconsistency. And uh, th- we, we again, I haven't done this before, so really thank you guys for coming and yeah. kind of well, pushing me to do this. 
No, well, a thank you for offering us this little you know slice of a day in the life of New Riff. But what what are your takeaways, the expert here on New Riff from December ninth, two thousand eighteen? Well, I, I wish I could reply with some you know scientific certainty of what was going on as we were discussing earlier. I don't know what the hell happened on the <laughs> other day. Like like most days of production at New Riff, it was a good day. <laughs> in the words of that immortal bard, Ice Cube. It was a good day. <laughs> it, was, it was a good day. <laughs> My number four film is 1973, George Lucas, American Graffiti. Ooh. I love this movie, man. It is, there's something about the shagginess of it. And it's just a hangout movie where people are making big decisions in their lives, but it just has the feel of any other night in a small town in California mm-hmm. in the early 60s. Uh, Licorice Pizza borrowed a lot from that movie. The opening credits are literally ripped from American Graffiti. And I love that it has the same kind of flow and rhythm to it. It's a movie that I really, really want us to get around to watching soon. Does, does American Graffiti, is that the cherry bomb scene that in Licorice Pizza? Yep, they do it happens okay. in American Graffiti yeah, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's my number four. Nice. Jay, I you said you might have a few extra movies to throw in there. Was, was there... Actually, I would chime in on American Graffiti. Uh, I didn't really seriously consider that, although as I uh, Googled, uh, you know, films that take place in 24 hours, yep. that was on the list. And I thought, yeah, there's a – for – so a new riff on an old tradition, our mantra on the back of the bottle of new riff. And that that's the old tradition. That's the halcyon days of youth and and what mm-hmm. we grew up with and the past and and glorifying and and remembering in in sepia toned lenses and so on that that uh that that era and and the past and that might have been fun but that's not that's only half of new riff right mm-hmm. uh we need uh we need a new riff on an old tradition so uh so no i wasn't going to go for american graffiti but great choice well thank you I feel like that was kind of a backhanded compliment, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did all right there, Bob. <laughs> Wouldn't be my choice, but good job. <laughs> What's your number three, Brad? Uh, my number three, I'm actually going to hold off on. Oh, because I would hate. To oh, do, that's right. To do the wrong thing. Brad's number three is and higher steal. up my list. Yeah, and I don't want to steal his thunder, so I will go ahead and do my number three. I think I don't want to steal your thunder, Bob. <laughs> my number three is Dog Day Afternoon. A a movie that Brad G famously loves. Yeah. And fan. has no qualms with whatsoever. Not a single one. It is truly one of the better, you know, uh, suspenseful films that take place over the course of a day. Bob, like, when I have an issue with movies, it's usually not that I don't like the movie. Like, I liked it on Day Afternoon. It's yeah. a pretty good movie. Yeah. It's when you give 10 out of 10 to movies that I'm like, Bob, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is not a 10 out of 10 film. It's not. It's a 9.5. Did you, <laughs> do you ever feel like you overcorrect to like try to make the average score be closer to what you think it should be? No, you do that. I absolutely do I that. I know you do that. <laughs> absolutely. It, no, I try to be pretty accurate with my, All right. my scoring. Dog Day Afternoon, uh, you're still sitting at like a seven and a half on that yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to go back and revisit it, but it was, it was good. It was Don't solid. Don't worry. We will. <laughs> All right, that takes us to our number two picks. Brad, where are you sitting at number two? My number two pick is a, another film that we did on the podcast. It's High Noon. High Noon. A great movie. See, that's a real-time movie. Yeah, That's it is. like a, this movie takes place in 85 minutes or something. And it's, I think it's 87 something or something. Something like that, yeah. It's 
just an incredible film. And it really ratchets up the tension, too. Yeah. When it finally hits noon, it... I mean, like, the or- I remember that scene where, you know, the clock strikes noon, the orchestra kind of swells, there's, like, this big booming beat in the background, and then you get that wonderful shot of Gary Cooper just walking out into the empty street, and you get that crane shot that pulls all the Dude. way up, and the entire town is deserted. Dude, I'm getting chills and thinking about it. And he's by himself. Yeah. And it is crushing. Yeah. The movie so perfectly balances the suspenseful with I mean the the crushing. Yeah. You know, I don't really know a better word for it. Yeah, the the way that they set him up to be such an incredible man and everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. But nobody's going to help him. Yeah. I I yeah. love that movie. My number 2 pick is actually Brad's number one pick. Holy so cow. We're, we're down to only three films to discuss. Yeah. All of our number ones. I've been uh, sitting on yours for a minute here. So why don't you reveal your number one? Yeah, my number one is 12 Angry Men. It's a perfect choice, man. It's a perfect movie, Bob. It's, like, it's just so good. That a, it's the 90-minute movie category, <laughs> right? It's in, it's out, it's sharp. It doesn't spend any extra time doing anything frivolous. Mm-hmm. B, it's Henry Fonda being the most convincing human being that's ever existed in film. One of your favorite notes to give on performances you like is Ernest. Yeah, sincere. And that man is just, sin- yeah, sincere. Yeah, that's completely exactly what it sincere, is. Conce- completely earnest. Like, the way the way that he just keeps going, but could it be possible? Yeah. When he's, when he's talking about the the 40 or 50 feet down the hallway and he's like illustrating out he times it out he's like he'd have to be spread this is a man it's a great movie my number one is do the right thing uh i mean i think my number three do the right thing yeah Yeah. it's a perfect example of how things can shift so quickly and over the course of a day and and i think it's for me, it's the best example of why a day is the perfect length mm-hmm. to do in a movie because it's short enough that you can think about, wow, when these people woke up, they were completely different people than when they went to yep. bed that night. Yep. But also, throughout the course of a day, you can see these little micro, I don't want to say microaggressions, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like these little micro incidents. Dominoes. That all, yeah, they pile up and it's a, it's more of a snowball effect, right? Yeah. That it gets to the point where everything just kind of spills over. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, like when you look at our world today and all the crazy stuff that goes on mm-hmm. in it, every single one of those crazy incidents has a do the right thing day it's an instructive, before it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's interesting. Well, Jay has been sitting on his movie here for a while now, so we're going to let him go next. Uh, so yeah, a few others uh, I could have could have considered, you know, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. But but then, which of my whiskeys is what was the character in that? The the really unsavory one, Sal. Is that his name? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which one is Sal? Right. Which one gets capped in the head yeah. by the cops? <laughs> yeah. You know, well that doesn't work. So Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, there's uh, great flicks like uh, One Day flicks like Reservoir Dogs. Uh, or uh, well, I was going to say Reservoir Dogs at some point, but Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. of which, and especially Pulp Fiction, uh, this this almost conceit of the of the director in in a wonderful way. They're great flicks, chopping the movie up, and yep. part of the fun of it is of of those films is is dissecting the timeline. What the hell happened? Yeah. Oh, I, I get it now. Well, hold yeah. on, this part is the first thing that happened, right? And that's the last, and it was the open shot and things like that. So those are fun, but those don't really reflect uh, anything about how we go and make whiskey. Uh, so finding a, a, a one-day film, and, and it, it's not, perhaps clinically not 
in this category the way other films are. There are some like High Noon that unquestionably take place within a 24-hour time mm -hmm. frame. And with with my pick, it, it's on the list when you Google it, so you know it's official. Mm. <laughs> but is it is it really in 24 hours? And there's not necessarily markers that there are. There's not clocks and there's not a, a, a literal narrative sequence. It's clue. Isn't it's a it? little, but, but yeah, but the, but it takes place. There's nothing <laughs> to say it doesn't take place within 24 hours. And with with other of the characters, they they frame the narrative such that it does. And uh, so as I as I went into this, I realized not only is it uh, you know from one of my favorite directors and and a great movie and everything, but as I peeled away the layers, if you will, of this onion of of how it told a story in its own filmmaking and in its narrative thrust, but applies uh, manifestly to our model that we presented here of a day in the life of of New Rift production. What does that look like? And I'm I'm afraid to say. Uh, Bob, I have gone back to the well. Oh, nice. And my film is Rashomon. Oh, I love this. And uh playing here behind us on the on the monitor in our in our room here at New Riff. It's uh it it's I, I love it when when uh people drop that uh that use of the word Rashomon to reflect uh multiple opinions of, of an event of a mm -hmm. day or something like that. And uh, I did giggle inside that I know what that even means <laughs> and have known it since I was a teenager. I saw, I started getting into Kurosawa. And uh, for those of you who have some, uh, some time to spend in your lives, go back and listen to our prior podcast mm -hmm. with Film and Whiskey in yeah. which my mm -hmm. pick was Seven Samurai, also by Kurosawa. I promise if we do this again, it won't be Kurosawa. I'll find something else he's, until he's gonna, I won't. He's going to pick Kurosawa. I was going to say, Here's the funny thing. We, we've been doing this uh, season based on directors. So we, we'll pick a director and we'll watch three or four of their films. And we, we had so much fun doing it with season six that we're carrying it into mm -hmm. season seven. And one of our directors is Kurosawa. Fantastic. And it will be our first, our first set of uh, foreign, foreign language films. Yeah. And so we would actually love to have you back on to talk about more yeah. Kurosawa. Now you've talked about Seven Samurai. You've talked about Rashomon. So I think, what were the other two that we had picked out? Uh, uh, Akiru. Akiru, yeah. Oh, uh, what was the other one? I don't know. I can pull it Throne up. of Blood, maybe. But you got you got to come back on, man. We'll talk about that would be Japanese fun. cinema. So Rashomon, if, if you're familiar with the movie, is uh, the story of um, a samurai and a, a brigand, a bandit, and uh, the the wife of the samurai, and the apparently the the brigand or bandit uh, attacks and rapes the wife, and the three of them are giving their account of what happened, and uh, it, it's a a moment in in film history where the the topic of what, what's called by film critics smarter than me about these things an unreliable narrator mm -hmm. is introduced. Flashbacks up to this point were used to. Uh, enlighten the audience to the truth of what really happened. Right. And Kurosawa uh, applies this to show not only multiple flashbacks and multiple viewpoints, but the fact that none of them is true. Yeah. All three of the of the characters in their flashbacks, the the samurai, his wife, and the bandit, attest or confess to the crime that wound up with uh, the husband dead and a dagger in his chest, according to who you you believe. Mm -hmm. There's also a fourth person who is a, a woodcutter who is a, also apparently a witness, but also has his own agenda yeah. going on. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, it concludes you still don't know what was the truth about what the hell really happened. Yeah. 
And that spoke to a, a, uh, a model that described our, our whiskeys here before us. So you were asking <laughs> earlier, I think, Brad, you asked a question. Yeah. Tell us about what happened on that day, uh, December 9th, <laughs> 2018, or, or as we say uh, federally, 18L09. What the hell happened? And these three whiskeys have three different opinions. Right. Well, I think this happened. I just set that up and you just knocked it out of the park. And and number three says, well, I think it was a minerally day. Clearly there was something going on. And number two's got another opinion. Who are we to believe? Yeah. Are yeah. we to believe the fourth narrator, narrator who is me? And I'm going to sit here as the whiskey expert and say, well, let me explain what really happened. Mm-hmm. If I do that, you shouldn't believe me. Yeah. Because the I mean, I truth of it is... <laughs> I don't know yeah. either exactly why each fermentation has a different character. Some are this, some are that, some are are, are black, some are white, some are smoky, etc. Mm-hmm. All New Riff whiskey is is a Rashomon upon what goes on here on a daily basis. What does go on and what these three, all of them excellent whiskeys, attest to is our commitment to quality. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth. You can decide maybe what happened. Maybe you can decide which one of the three really put the dagger in, in, in the film Rashomon. But, uh, that spoke powerfully to, uh, the, the conceit, if you will, of, of a day's production at New Riff. What was that day like? Nobody knows. What I really hear you saying is that you guys need to partner with the Kurosawa state and create a partnership. Like a, a Kurosawa, Ra- Rashomon Rai. Yeah. Rashomon Rai. There you go. <laughs> well, we know now why Jay is the global brand ambassador at New Riff. Yeah. Listen, when you have a job like this and you're you're talking to people about your whiskey and you're, you're trying to sell them on the idea, you got to be able to tell a good story. I am super pumped to watch Rashomon now. Yeah. I can't wait till we get to that episode, Brad. Yeah, it's going to be an absolute blast. That's I've said for a while now, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm mm-hmm. ready to dive in. I haven't watched Kurosawa yet. Partially out of, I knew we would do him eventually in the podcast, mm-hmm. but also out of the fact that I just, I didn't watch foreign language films growing up. Yeah. So I, I am really pumped. All right. Well, that's it for us at New Rift today. Jay, thank you again so much for having us here. You bet. We'll be back with another bonus episode here in a couple weeks, hopefully, Brad. Yeah. Uh, it's good to see you in person. Man. It's great to be in person. We normally record these uh, cities apart. So. We really do. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Bye.